Um, if you want to go ahead and start flipping to Ephesians 2, um, keep one finger in Ephesians 2, um, and we're going to be um, there, but also a lot of other places this morning. If you're using a device, good luck keeping your finger in Ephesians 2. That's why you should use a paper, but that's just my personal preference. Um, but through this series, we have talked about our, our, what we believe on, on God, on Jesus, on the Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at our beliefs on, on Scripture. And in doing this, we don't want to pretend that all of this is super easy, that there's not questions, there's not some more things to kind of work through, and we know that. And hopefully it's a time that we can have those conversations together as the church and that it can be a time uh, an edifying time for us as the church to, to really like, what do we believe? What are these, these, the core truths just running all through Scripture about what we believe? Um, and this week, we are going to focus on a doctrine that is not often uh, made much of. It's not um, talked about a lot often, but it's a, a doctrine, a belief that we see from Genesis all the way through Revelation. It's a, a core thing that we see all the way through. And we are going to look at the doctrine of man. Yeah, the doctrine of man, what we believe about who we are. Because that plays a huge role in Scripture. It's God's word. It's God as, as sovereign working out his will. But the importance of man through there is very, very clear. But we so often get a skewed view of God. I mean, that, that's what happens. Like all, you look around the world, there's such a skewed view of, of who God is. But I think there's also a very skewed view of who we are, who, who man is. Maybe most importantly, the condition that man is in. But what, the, the point that I want to try to get across this morning is that what we believe about who we are, what we believe that man is, goes a long way to show both what we believe about God and what our response to him is to be. I'll say it again. What we believe about ourselves, what we believe about man, goes a long way to show what we believe about God and how we are to respond to him. That, a, lot of this, a lot of the importance of this doctrine is pointing out the great need that man is in. Like You'll notice that when Tanner preached on God, he didn't talk about the needs God had. That God has no need. That God is everything that God needs to be. But man, the core central part of this doctrine is our great need. And I'm just going to be completely honest. Um, this morning, it's going to feel pretty heavy for most of it. Uh, there's not a lot of like, hey, look how good you are. Look how awesome we are. There's not a whole lot of encouragement in about 90% of this morning. Um, we're going to get to the 10, but we've got to bear through the first part first. But please, just, just hear what I'm going to say. And I'm going to introduce a lot of things. There's some techie things. There's some, some, some hard things. Um, but I'm not going to go into the most detail I possibly could. I wanted to, and it was going to be like three hours long. Um, but we're not going to do that. But just, just, just bear with me. And as we look at man's need, we're going to, I hope... Well, the point I want to make is that as we see, as we have a proper understanding of our need, that leads us to an understanding of our need for a Savior. That the understanding our great need leads us to an understanding of our need for a Savior. 
So right off the bat, um, I know you have one finger in Ephesians. I don't know if I told you you have to put your other finger in uh, Gal- Galatians. In Genesis 1, but go ahead and start flipping Genesis 1. It's the easiest one to find, hopefully. Um, Genesis 1. So we see that God create has Genesis 1, we see God creating everything. And right off the bat, we see man come into play in verse 26. Verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right off the bat, we see not only a, a description of, of the Trinity, the, the persons in the Trinity, let us make man in our image, but we see that man is made in the image of God. That imago Dei, the people always, if you've been in the church long at all, you've heard that man, we're created in the image of God. And he says it's different than the rest of creation because the rest of creation was not made in the image of God. It was all good. He said it was all good, but it was not made in his image. And you see, in Genesis 1 and 2, you see that, that perfection of, of the garden, that man is in relationship with his wife, that man is in relationship with God. It says they're naked and unashamed. Um, they're just in this, these perfect relationships, the creator-creation relationships. And I, I really was, had considered to go into a lot of, I tried to go into a lot of detail, detail about what it looks like to be created in the image of God. Um, we could do a whole series on this, um, sometime, and I, I think it'd be a really cool study to do. But I'm not going to get into all the specifics of what this looks like this morning. But there are, like Scripture shows, there are ways that we res- are made in the image of God that the rest of creation is not. Um, that, that, that we are different than the rest of creation. And it's important that we know this because belief that man is made in the image of God is just, it's so important that it's not, it's not just us but it's every other person, every race, every country, every nation, every people, every difference that we could ever have, all made in the image of God. This, is, this, this belief in the Imago Dei is seen most clearly in the church's um, like historical pro-life stands in terms of abortion, but it can't stop there. It can't be just, we're pro-life, so we defend the unborn. It's every part of life, every person made in the image of God. Absolutely includes defending the unborn, but it's the pro all life. Again, there's so much more that could be said there, but man created in the image of God. I just want to give this, this, this kind of overview of man here to start out with. And we know that, unfortunately, man does not stay in that Genesis 1 and 2 state, that in a rebellion against their creator, we see sin into the world in Genesis 3, um, as they... Um, reject their creator. And, and we see the different ways that sin um, now affects man. I know I'm skimming through. Um, there's a lot more that could be said. But we see that God says there are specific ways that, that now life is going to be. For, for women, there's going to be pain in childbirth. They're going to have this unhealthy desire for, um, their, the, to rule over their husband. For man, the, the work is going to be hard. There's going to be um, toil and sweat. That The ground's going to rebel against him. 
And then he says he's going to return to the dust, that there is going to be physical death. And we see these immediate consequences. But it's not a, this is all the consequence of sin. That's all there in Genesis 3, 14 through 17-ish, where God is saying, this is what it's going to look like. That's not just this comprehensive list. Because we see all through Scripture, in Romans 1, you see it in Romans 8, you see multiple places that, that sin has affected everything. Everything. Our relationships. It's affected the way we communicate with one another. It's affected the way that we um, do basically everything. I mean, even in, right after sin enters the world, in Genesis 3, 7, we see all of a sudden man is ashamed to be in, naked in front of his wife. We see him hiding from God. And now this image of God now also has this, this fallen image of Adam. Not, don't, don't, don't take that too far. Because we're still made in the image of God. That image of God is not replaced by the, the fallen image of Adam. But now there's also sin. There's also this fallen image. And again, affected by our sin and everything that we do. In Genesis 3, we see a fundamental shift to basically everything. There's, now that sin is in the world, there, there, there's this shift. The shift away from the, the perfect relationships, the perfect setting of the garden. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that I don't think I have to convince anyone of the fact that we live in a fallen, awful, sinful, broken world. I mean, we see that. Turn on the news, turn on any social media outlet, talk to anyone basically, and you can see this. I don't think I have to convince anyone of this. But why is it that things have not gotten better since Genesis 3? When sent into the world, why has it stayed sinful? Why has it stayed in just this messed up state? It's not getting better. It seems sometimes to feel like it's getting worse and worse. Start turning to Romans 5, if you would. We're going to be all over the place. Keep that finger in Ephesians 2. I know we haven't gotten there yet. But why is it that this, everything is so broken and tainted and affected by sin? I'm going to read Romans 5, 12 through 19. And I'm going to ask you to do something a little odd, a little, probably usually not advisable. Um, but as we read through these verses, 12 through 19, what I want you to do is really, really make sure you're paying attention to what it's saying about Adam, what it's saying about sin. Because these verses are a comparison of Jesus and Adam. Um, they're, they're, it's making that comparison and making Jesus out to be a whole lot better. But this first time we read through this, I want you to focus on what it's saying about man, what it's saying about sin. Um, so just keep that in mind. Starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 
But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Listen, there, there is a ton in here. So much. I've heard, I've seen where different pastors have taken five, six weeks to walk through just this set of verses. So forgive me if I don't go into that level of, of depth here. But verse 16, verse 15 says that many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16 says that one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 18 says that one trespass brought condemnation for all men. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it did not just make it a possibility that men might sin. It did not just make it a possibility that men might sin. I want to show that Adam's sin brought condemnation for us too. And this has been something that has been debated about for centuries, for basically all time. But there's these different views on what this original sin is. What is this talking about? And I just want to sum them up really quickly. Some would say that when Adam sinned, he set this really bad example for us. That he said he started off on a bad leg, set a bad example, um, but that's all it was. That man has the ability to be good. That man could, hypothetically, be perfect, could choose to love God, could, could be in that perfect state. This view is often tied to, um, I, also, I always screwed up, but Pelagianism. It's often tied to that where um, so it says that we could be perfect if we wanted to be. If we would just hold fast, we could be perfect. This view was rejected a long time ago by the teachings of the church, um, long ago rejected. But that is a view in, in terms of Adam's sin in correlation to us. Most of the church, most, of, um, most Christians would say that Adam's sin obviously introduced a stain into mankind that now man is bent towards sin instead of um, bent towards following God. But even in this, they would say that, yeah, yeah, we're bent towards sin, but I'm not guilty because of Adam's sin. Like, I'm guilty because of my sin, but I'm not guilty for Adam's sin. And there is absolutely some truth in that view. Absolutely. We are guilty. We are condemned because of our sin. But Romans 5... Like, we are already guilty. We are already guilty in Adam. Guilty of our sin, guilty of condemnation because of our sin, but already guilty in Adam. It can make us kind of recoil and make us be like, wait, what? No, 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 no. Like, we live in this individualistic society when we want to all be treated as individuals as like, no, no, I only control what's going on in my life. Oh, that's, that's, that's me. Don't, don't try to say that I'm condemned in Adam. I'm going to read through some things real quick. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Listen, I'm not trying to say you got to like this you got to be totally on board 100% and say, yes, I love this idea. 
But sin is not just a possibility for man. It's the very nature by which we are born. Like that is the effect that sin had. Jesus excluded. There's been no one born who is not born into sin. And as, as we in our individualistic minds reject this, we're like, ah, no. Like God has always treated people as a people. He continually treated Israel as Israel. Israel has rejected me. Israel has sinned against me. Israel has turned to other gods. We see, we've talked about it numerous times here, the sins of Achan in Joshua, where one man's sin led to multiple, multiple people dying, multiple, uh, an entire nation um, facing judgment because of one man's sin. So just because I think this rejection, the trouble with this doctrine is, is like even more in our culture because we're so focused on the individual. But, th- but then also, you don't have to flip there, but Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was, this is David speaking, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's not saying David, David's mom wasn't in sin because she had a baby. Like this, is, this psalm is a, a psalm of David repenting over his sin with Bathsheba. Like he says, my transgressions are before me. Like my sin, I, sinned, I have sinned against God. He's not trying to remove the responsibility from himself. But he also says, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in this sinful state. He's not removing his responsibility, but he's saying, this is how I was born. We're born slaves to sin, slaves to our flesh. Those that live according to the flesh cannot please God. Like We'll, we'll, we'll get there in a little bit. It, it, that's hard. I'm going to give a quote before as kind of a transition um, from here. But this is from Douglas Moo. Um, he, he wrote a commentary um, I'm sure, Nick, I'm sure you guys have seen this um, in Lifeway. But he wrote a commentary, and he says, regardless of how you want to reject that that idea of original sin as guilty in Adam, no matter what, what you struggle with in terms of sin entering the world, listen to this quote. He says, to explain the universality of sin, we must assume at least that Adam's sin has predisposed every person to sin. So either way, people end up condemned because of something that Adam did. Like, just kind of a, a catch-all there. Like, regardless of where you want to land on that, we end up condemned because of something that Adam did. So, all men, through Adam, depraved, sinful, sinful nature. For Adam, for me, for you, for Bob walking down the street. All in, every individual depraved. Told you it's going to be super encouraging. It's probably fitting that it's raining. But when we talk about the depravity of man, we see, we often, people talk about, like, oh, the depravity of man, like, we're, we're sinful, look at our actions. I've heard so many pastors take this and, and use examples of kids. And I was like, yes, I could relate so well to these last six months. And I've got so many examples when I, when I, when I knew I was going to be preaching this probably um, three or four months ago. It was like, I'm going to have so many examples. Like, this is going to be perfect. And I'm not going to use most of them. But it was really fitting because yesterday I was downstairs working on the sermon and all the girls were upstairs. And all of a sudden I just heard meltdown, like breakdown. 
And I was like, oh, man. So I walked upstairs, and um, Bella, sorry, I didn't mean to name drop. Sorry, Bella. Um, but <laughs> it's, Bella was like all out screaming in her room. And I was like, Brenda, like, what is going on? And she said, she dropped her granola bar and wouldn't pick it up. Like, she wasn't even in trouble. It was just like, she upset that she dropped her granola bar. And Brenda's like, pick it up. And she was just like kicking and screaming. And so I was like, well, now you're going to get in trouble if you just keep needing to do this. Long story. So I hear her in her room screaming. And I was like, and then I heard kicking, like kicking things. I was like, okay, I'm going to got to go down there and say, you can be sad, you can cry, you can't kick things. And as I walked in, it's like, you're seeing that like kids throw a tipper tantrum, look like, look like a fish out of water, like flopping around. It's like, what is going on? Like, this is so perfect for like a sermon analogy. So thank you, Bella. But... Um, and even a better, an even better example was this morning, actually. Um, Rosie woke up super early, um, way too early, and she'd already been crying. Long, anyways, but twins are still sleeping, and Rosie, having spent most of her life with um, this Italian couple from Boston, she's running down the hallway screaming, Go Tom Brady! I want the Patriots to win! <laughs> Depravity! Depravity. Depravity. I was so excited when Brenda told me that she was screaming that down the hallway. I was like, yes, I could use that. Um, but listen, like, I'm not going to make a huge deal out of the external actions that display our depravity. And we can go on and on and on about the depravity of our world. Like, look at the news, look at Facebook, look at any sort of outlet there is, and we see sin. We see it so clearly. Sorry, getting, I, had to, I had to lighten it for a second because we're getting back heavy. But, like, we live in a world where we see a man sexually abusing hundreds of girls as a doctor. We live in a world with a murder rate that is skyrocketing. We live in a world where there's parents who have chained their children up in the basement with very little food and water for years. Where a man would walk into a church and shoot up a church of another color. Like, that is the depraved world we live in. But even those things, like I mentioned them now, but like that's not the focus of the depravity of man that I want to show this morning. Because all of those things, no matter how awful, no matter how ugly and almost unimaginable these things are, these outward actions are just showing the kind of heart that man has. I mean, every single action that comes forth is just revealing the true condition of the heart of man. A heart that does not seek God, a heart that is enslaved to sin, a heart that rebels every single day. So when, when I'm talking about the depravity of man, that we are depraved as men, what I'm talking about is all the, the state of our hearts, the state of our soul, the state of our mind in, in, in relation to our treatment of God, in, in relation to our response and obedience and submission to God. So all the, all the external actions, everything that comes out is just a symptom of that. But we're talking about the state of our hearts. So Ephesians 2. We're finally there. Ephesians 2. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is probably one of my favorite sections in Scripture. I mean, it's just straight gospel. Um, but Ephesians 2. I'm going to read the first three verses. The first three verses of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start looking at verse 3, and what I want to do is, is walk through this backwards. It's not going to change the meaning. I'm just going to kind of walk through section by section as we go through backwards. And I've tried to make it really easy on the screen as we go through with making kind of bold letters on the, the section of the verse that I want to kind of um, get into. The very first one being, Paul talks about the rest of mankind. Hey, I spent some time on that. Um, but the rest of mankind. So there's, there's two groups of people. He's talking about the rest of mankind and then this other group. And we see that, that Paul, the other group is the people he's writing to which are the saints who are in Ephesus, and he says that they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Like, those are the people that he's writing to. So, like, it's the rest of mankind and then this group. He says, the rest of mankind, by nature, children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. By nature. Not by choice. Not by bad luck. Not by that first bad sin when they were two years old and said, that's mine. Sorry, Rose, I'm sure you've heard that recently. But like, that's, we're not sinners because we sinned when we were two years old. Like It says, children of wrath by nature. In sin did my mother conceive me. No one has to teach us how to sin. That's something that we do by nature. So the rest of mankind, who are by nature children of wrath, carrying out the desires of, sorry, I should not have put a blank slide in between each one, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, which initially doesn't sound all that bad. But look, at what, what does the Bible say about the body and the mind? You don't have to flip there, but Romans 1 is one of the most clear pictures we see of, like, of, of sin and, and how that's all working and what's going on with sin in the world. And I just want to read two verses. Um, first, I want to look at uh, verse 24 of Romans 1. They've, re they've rejected God. It says, Therefore God gave them up in their lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Like, their bodies. Like, the, the, the bodies. All right, now skip down to verse 28. It'll be on the screen. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. First the body, then the mind. Like, carrying out the desires of the body, carrying out the desires of the mind is not a good thing. Like, our flesh is sinful. Our nature is sinful. But then keep in mind that he's writing to, he's talking about these two groups of people. The rest of mankind, but then he's going to reference the other group here in the beginning part. Um, he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. We all were there. He says, that's everyone. Everyone that by nature are children of wrath, carrying out the desires of the body, carrying out the desires of the mind. He says, that's everybody. Some of you are still there. Some of you were there. He says, among whom we all once lived. The Christians he's writing to are not exempt from this. Now look back to Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
Like the state that that leaves us in, being children of wrath, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the state that leaves us in is not a sickness. It's not this impairment. It's not even this like mortal wound. It is death. The state, spirit, the spiritual state that we are in because of our sinful nature, because of sin, is death. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's not, it's not on the screen, but Colossians 2.13, he says the same thing. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In case you need reminded, like dead people don't do much to become undead. Like, dead people are dead. Like, they, just physically speaking, like, dead people are dead. They, they don't get out of that on their own. Like, they're dead. But I think there's this, there's this divide in, in our thinking that we separate. Like, we, we understand. We, we can understand. Yeah, I need forgiveness for sin. I need, I need forgiveness for, that, for, for condemnation. I, I, need, I need forgiveness. And, and yes, absolutely. I don't want to downplay that in the least because we absolutely do. But you were dead. Like, we need a Savior because we were in the morgue. Like, we were dead. Dead. Like, how do we even have hope to respond to God if we are dead? Like, how can we even hope to do that? Like, if that is true, if this is true, then our need for saving like, I don't know how to make any, any more of that. Like, our need for saving is so great because we're dead. We walk, we talk, we breathe, we think. But spiritually speaking, we're dead. There's no spirit within us. Which means that everything we're doing is flesh. Flip over to Romans 8. Keep that finger in Ephesians 2. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Living according to the flesh, we cannot please God. But that is who we are. That is the nature of man is flesh. We have no spirit. We are dead, children of wrath by nature. Like, that's where we find ourselves, spiritually dead. It says we, those that are spiritually dead cannot please God. Listen, like, there's, there's also different views, just like with original sin. There's different views on depravity. But depravity, what I see means that unless God does something, we are going to remain dead. Unless God does something, we are going to remain dead. If left to ourselves, we are going to continue living in the flesh. 
If left to ourselves, we are going to follow our flesh. Why? Because it's our nature. Because that is who we are. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. And there's only one hope. And that is that God does something. We are dead. Only hope is God does something. God is going to have to initiate something. God is going to have to act. That life that is not in us because we are spiritually dead, God is going to have to put there. There, there's this view on depravity that says, like, that compares our depravity, our sin, to like a crack in a mirror or a blemish on our heart or, or this, this, just this, this crack that needs repairing. And we need to ask forgiveness so God will repair that crack to make us all that he created us to be. I don't think the Bible describes sin as a crack. Like, if we downplay the seriousness of the crack, then we downplay the seriousness of our need for salvation. If we downplay the seriousness of our sin, we discount all of what Jesus has done. Spoiler alert. But seriously, like, if we are, seri- if we are spiritually dead, no, spiritually dead, John 4, 24, this is the words of Jesus. He says, those that worship God do so in spirit and in truth. Not in flesh, in spirit, and in truth. But if we're spiritually dead, we cannot worship God. I told you it was going to be heavy. I told you it's going to be a lot, of t- a lot of hard stuff. But when we look at what the Bible says about man, it's talked about in a very grave way. We are dead. We are without hope. We are by nature children of wrath. But because our need is so infinitely great, like we have need for an infinitely great Savior, and that is what we have. Like look back at Ephesians 2. We're still in Ephesians 2. You're going to start in verse 1 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The hope that we have is based purely on the mercy of God, choosing to love sinners and making them alive. Like that is the only hope that we have. The only hope. I don't know if I have this up on the screen, um, but Romans 6, 5 through 7 um, says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, sur- we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Our old selves, our old natures, our old sinful flesh was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Because of this, like, death becomes life. Like, we were dead and have been made alive. Like, for you Christians, like, this is the hope that we have, that Jesus, we've gone from death to life. Listen, like, you may remember back, like, why, why is it fair that I'm guilty because of Adam? Why am I, why is it fair that I, that my, that Adam's sin is counted to me. Why is that fair? You know what's not fair? That Jesus, in all humility, with astonishing love, took the pain and judgment that we deserved. You know what's not fair? That we receive salvation not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, in spite of what we have done. That's not fair. But that is grace. That is salvation. Like, why do we say that Jesus is better? Why do we say that Jesus is worthy of his name that we're going to sing in a little bit? Because he took the punishment that we deserved. He took that on our behalf so that we could go from death to life. Like, he didn't go to fix a crack in a mirror. He didn't go to fix this little thing that was wrong. But he went to the cross and died and was raised again so that we, dead in our trespasses and sins, might be made alive with him. Like, why is depravity worth studying? Why is this so important? Because great need, great need shows the glory of Jesus. Like, I, I, want, I, wanted, I wanted this to be heavy. I wanted this to be hard. But for you Christians, for those of you who have been saved, look down at Ephesians 2.12. Just, just down a little bit. Ephesians 2.12. Paul says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like Paul says, this, this was you. That was you. No hope. Dead in trespasses and sins. Completely dead. By nature, children of wrath. That was you. Was but Jesus has made us alive. Like, he put life in us when we were dead without hope. Like, do you see the necessity and the, the call to evangelism within this? Like, there is a world around us that is dead and will be dead unless they hear the words of life. Great Commission, we've been called to go and make disciples. We've been called to be the instruments that God uses to bring about the salvation of people through his name and Jesus alone. But we are to be those instruments. <clears throat> I 
if there is any doubt about why we worship, why Jesus is worthy of all praise and all glory, it's because he took dead people and made them alive. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. Like, there, there may be some of you who are thinking, like, wait, this doesn't describe me. This is not me. Like, I, I really don't think I'm as bad as you're telling me that I am. Like, I, I don't think that would describe me. Listen, like, depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be or that we're as evil as we could possibly ever be. That's not what depravity means. But depravity means that we are alienated from God, totally separated from Him, totally alienated, separated from Him, unable to please Him. So don't try to please Him with your work. Don't try to please Him with your actions. Don't try to please Him by being good. Trust that Jesus alone accomplished that. Again, don't, you don't have to flip here. But in John 5.25, this is Jesus talking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Like, the time is here. Like, that is something that we all need to hear. Like, if we've been saved, it's, the time is here for, that people are going to hear the words of Jesus and be made alive. We share the gospel. If you don't believe, the time is here. God is, is, is right now working. The Spirit of God is working. Trust Him. There's nothing we can do. Trust that Jesus has done it and He alone but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. As a church, we praise you because you're all we've got, but, because, but it's because you're all we need. Father, we have great need. If you had left us to ourselves, we're all spiritually dead. But Father, you breathe life. You initiated it. You sent Jesus. You are at work with your spirit, Father. We praise you for life. Thank you that you don't leave it up to us to figure it out. Father, our need is so great, but Jesus is even greater, and I just praise you for him. Oh God, I, I pray that your spirit be moving Father, I pray that you be using these words that you've given us to stir in our hearts, even to give life for the first time as we understand our sinfulness and understand our need for Jesus. 
Father, I pray that, that you might save people. But Father, for, for those that are saved, I, I pray that you would continue to work on us. That we would both understand our need, but even in a bigger way, that we would understand the great salvation that we've been given and that it was freely given by you. Father, this is worthy of praise. This is worthy of so much. I just pray that you would drive us to worship. That you, that you would just cause this excitement within us because of what you've done. Because that you've spoken life when all there was was death. That you have, have given life and given it abundantly. Father, we trust you. I ask that you would make each one of us more and more and more like your son. Father, you are worth it. You're worth all that we could give and then a hundredfold. I, I just, I pray, Father, that you would stir up our, in our hearts just this, this worship that we can't contain, this awe that we can't express. Father, thank you that you've given us words that we can, that we can, that we can sing about who you are. We can sing about what you've done because you alone have done it. Father, thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.